Hello again. You've joined us on the third and final episode of the October 2022 BV Online podcast, your slice of genuine Dorset life. Welcome from me, Jenny Devitt. And me, Terry Bennett. In this episode, we'll hear about a sketch map of Wessex that accompanies Thomas Hardy's novel, Tess the D'Urbervilles. The influence of two brothers on the rebuilding of Blanford after an 18th century fire. And Edwina Baines has paid a visit to the Gug in Stalbridge. Chestnuts and mushrooms featuring Carl Minton's tips for autumn foraging. We hear from wildlife writer Jane Adams why she thinks you should go for a walk in the countryside after dark. And news of the possible establishment of new wildlife-rich corridors across Dorset. A sketch map of Wessex is a priceless companion to Hardy's masterpiece Tess of the D'Urbervilles, says Roger Guttridge. Thomas Hardy's novels often come with a map of the writer's Wessex, complete with all his renamed towns and villages. Far less well-known, but vastly more interesting, to me at least, is the rough and ready sketch map of Tess's country that Hardy drew as he was preparing to write Tess of the D'Urbervilles. It was published in Harper's Magazine in 1925, three years before Hardy died. Dorset's most famous literary son knew North Dorset well, of course, not least because he lived at Riverside in Sturminster Newton for two years and wrote The Return of the Native during that period. The first thing that jumps out at me from the map is the oval-shaped dotted line surrounding the words Vale of Blackmore. Most people today, of course, including the editor of this magazine, spell it Blackmore, M-O-R-E, not M-O-O-R, as Hardy did. But it's interesting that Hardy was originally thinking of this alternative version. By the time Tess was published in 1891, he had adopted a third option and hedged his bets, writing in the opening sentences of both chapters 1 and 2 of The Vale of Blakemore or Blackmore. This suggests that in Hardy's time or earlier, some people might have pronounced it Blakemore. The only Blackmore Vale town or village that appears on the map is Marlott, but unlike most of the other locations further afield, Hardy doesn't bother to add its real name, Marnell. Marlott also appears in the novel's opening sentence, as Hardy describes John Derbyfield's walk to his home in the village following his weekly visit to the market at Shaston, which was Shaftesbury, which also appears on the map. Semley Station on the South Western Railway, which served Shaftesbury and appears in Jude the Obscure, is one of two stations on the map, the other being London Waterloo. It's during his journey home from Shaston that Derbyfield meets the antiquary Parson Tringham, who sows misplaced ideas of grandeur in his head by calling him Sir John and alleging his descent from Sir Pagan d'Urberville, who came over with William the Conqueror. The suggestion sets in motion a tragic train of events that culminates in the ill-fated Tess Derbyfield's execution at Wintoncester, that's Winchester. As elsewhere... Hardy used real buildings in his descriptions of Marlott, including Derbyfield's local, Rolliver's, thought to be based on the Blackmore Vale Inn, and the Pure Drop, the Crown, which, according to John, offered a very pretty brew. Identification of the Derbyfield's cottage is more challenging. In Thomas Hardy's Wessex, published in 1913, Herman Lee said, The old cottage in which Tess was imagined to have been born 
appeared to have been swept away. In the introduction, Lee thanked Hardy for correcting a few place identifications. This is contradicted by later sources, which claim that Hardy identified Tess's cottage during a visit to Marnell in later life. Other places on Hardy's map include Emminster, which is Beminster, hometown of Tess's husband, Angel Clare, Flintcombe Ash, which is plush, which he calls a farm near Nettlecombe Tout, Shotsford, which is Blandford, Trantridge, which is Pentridge, home of the Stoke d'Urbervilles, and Tess's seducer and rapist, Alec d'Urberville. Nearby Chaseborough, which is Cranbourne, where Tess waits for her friends at the Fleur de Luce, which in real life has happily regained its traditional name, the Fleur de Lys, and Melchester, which was Salisbury, where Angel and the fugitive Tess pass over Town Bridge, based on St Nicholas Bridge, built in 1245. To the south of Dorset, Hardy creates a smaller dotted shape, enclosing the words Valley of the Froom, spelt F-R-O-O-M, which he also calls the Valley of the Great Dairies, in contrast to the Vale of Blackmore, which is the Vale of Little Dairies. Close to the River Froom are Wellbridge, which is Woolbridge Manor, which once belonged to the D'Urbervilles, and where Tess and Angel stay after their marriage, and the half-dead townlet of Kingsbeer, which is Beer Regis, where the similarly named Turbervilles were lords of the manor for 500 years. Casterbridge, or Dorchester, and Budmouth, or Weymouth, which commonly feature in Hardy's work, are also shown, as is Sandbourne, which was Bournemouth, which in Hardy's lifetime had grown at breakneck speed to become a fashionable watering place. It's at Sandbourne that Tess effectively seals her fate by murdering Alec d'Urberville with a carving knife following the unexpected return of her beloved Angel Clare. A recent clean of William Buster's portrait revealed an intriguing detail, says Rupert Hardy, chairman of North Dorset CPRE. The brothers, William and John Bastard, schoolchildren, no tittering please, owed a lot to a candlemaker whose workshop is now the site of the King's Arms in Blandford. His apprentice was boiling up some soap, but the fire in the furnace got out of control, and within an hour much of the town was alight, the fire fanned by a strong wind. More than 400 families lost their homes on that fateful day in 1731. The abundance of thatched houses in that period contributed greatly to the high incidence of domestic fires. However, the sheer scale of Blanford's fire meant it was soon designated as a great fire and was considered a national disaster. Charity performances and parish church collections throughout England helped raise a large sum to start reconstruction. John and William were surveyor architects and civic dignitaries in Blanford. Their father, Thomas's workshop, was destroyed in the fire, but the fortunes of his sons were made as soon as they were appointed fire assessors. They were thus in a strong position to benefit from the rebuilding, which was mostly done in a vernacular Baroque style. The most significant buildings in Blanford today were built by the Bastard Brothers, including the impressive Town Hall and Corn Exchange, the Greyhound Inn, and their own splendid house overlooking the widened and improved marketplace. They also built a terrace house of almshouses and private houses such as Cooper House. The parish church of St Peter and St Paul was designed and built by them between 1732 and 1739. It was originally intended to have a steeple, but funds ran out. 
The brothers were rather put out when the contract for the wooden cupola was given to a competitor. Recent cleaning of a portrait of William, now hanging in the town hall, revealed that he had curiously been painted sporting a black eye. At first it was thought that the darker patch was simply dirt that had accumulated over the years, but further research revealed that it may have related to a dispute over completion of the church. There was no evidence, though, to confirm it. The interior of the church is imposing, with a grand arcade of well-spaced ionic columns. When visiting, do not miss the Dad's army effort to confuse the enemy in the north transept. All references to Blandford in the charity boards there were deleted in 1940. The church is now acknowledged to be one of the better examples of a classic Georgian church in England, thankfully little altered by the Victorians. Beside the church is a memorial to the Great Fire. It comprises four Doric columns with a stone canopy made of Purbeck stone, also built in the classical style. It was erected over a piped spring so that the fire hoses could be attached, but is now a drinking fountain. A more recent memorial by the Blandford Poetry Group is on a Purbeck paving stone in front of the town hall and reads, Recipe for Regeneration. Take one careless tallow chandler and two ingenious bastards. Many are confused by the brothers' building style. Primarily, they designed in a vernacular Baroque style, harking back to Wren and Gibbs, their capitals reminiscent of Borromini with the lutes turned inwards, but they did not ignore the more austere Palladianism so fashionable at the time. The town hall appears to be Palladian, but the ground floor, with its open arcade of three segmented arches, is more typical of Renaissance market halls. If you visit the mezzanine room in the bastard's own house, ask at the Age UK shop, 73 East Street, which now occupies part of it, you will see the ornate plasterwork and interior decoration of which they were capable. It was a showroom for clients. Look carefully and you will see that the pediment of the overmantel is Palladian, while the pediment of the door opposite is Baroque. William died in 1766 and John four years later in 1770. Both men were unmarried and without issue. Both are buried in Blandford. Art. John Stanley and Deanne Tremlett give Edwina Baines a tour of the enormous range of creative options available for the whole community at The Gug in Stalbridge. Gone are the days when the cows were driven up Station Road twice a day to be milked. The yard and outbuildings of the 16th century farm have for more than 25 years been the home of Guggleton Farm Arts, or The Gug, as it's now affectionately called. The farmyard offers an eclectic range of studios, galleries and shops, as well as the Dutch Barn Sculpture Yard, and a large space available for outdoor events. A sign at the entrance proudly announces a community interest company where anyone can join. Tea, a little refreshments cabin crammed with cosy sofas, is tucked into the corner of the Dutch Barn. It was here that I enjoyed a cup of coffee with treasurer and curator and artistic director Deanne Tremlett. Guggleton Farm Arts was founded by owner, artist Isabel de Pelle, a renowned champion of visual and performing arts and supporter of local artists, as an inspirational environment for artistic exploration. It welcomes local people to get involved in creativity of all kinds at all levels. Exhibitions by established artists inspire visitors and resident and participating artists to develop their aspirations. A continuing theme. 
At the beginning of 2019, Isabel stepped back from day-to-day involvement. It was a serendipitous search for a new studio that led accomplished painter Deanne to Stallbridge. She has helped in the continuing development of Isabel's vision ever since, as it's one which entirely mirrors her own. She says, At the heart of all our work is the belief that any creative pursuit, no matter what form and independent of its outcome, promotes well-being, nurtures the mind, and provokes discussion and engagement. We are a place for all ages and experience, offering opportunities to become involved in a creative community with all of the joy and growth that this creates. We're not looking to be results-based, we're looking for people to enjoy themselves through their creativity. The Shedders I visited on a Tuesday, the day the men's shed was in operation. This is one of 576 sheds in the UK which belong to the Men's Shed Association. Whatever the activity, the essence of a shed is not a building, but the connections and relationships between its members. These are community spaces for men to pursue practical interests at leisure, to practice skills and enjoy making and mending. David Stubbings, the shed coordinator, was notionally in charge at the GUG, but I gathered the activities were a collaboration between the other shedders, as they're called. The space was filled with woodworking and metalworking tools, most of which have been donated or are owned by David. The activities are similar to those that the shedders might undertake in their own garden sheds, but with the company and encouragement of others, helping to reduce the common loneliness and isolation. Most importantly, they're fun, as I saw from the laughter and camaraderie from busy workers. Every corner used. Our next stop was the bar, a community flea market and brocant space stocked with lovely bits and bobs and run on a commission basis. John said there'd even been visits from dealers in London who came down to Dorset and grabbed some bargains. In the milking parlour gallery, there was an exhibition of new paintings by Matthew Haywood. John explained that artists are invited to exhibit and the calendar is booked a year ahead. Outside the gallery, tucked into a corner, there's a cupboard full of free craft materials for children who can go to the Dutch barn with their parents to make things during the holidays. John showed me the pottery shed, recently equipped with a shiny new kiln where classes will soon be held. Thanks to a grant from Dorset's Culture and Community Fund, all children within the catchment area can enjoy two free pottery lessons. Tutor Carolyn Finch-Corlett was teaching her weekly oil painting from observation class in the workshop or art room that she describes as an inspiring space. In a nearby studio, Joe Winter was using her jigsaw to create some new designs which she will use in forthcoming classes. She's a mosaic artist who works mainly in 3D. She showed me photographs of quirky dog sculptures that she sold in Brighton. They started life as a wire armature covered in concrete and then were layered with ceramic or lusterware mosaic. Her sculpture, Fox Trotsky, has pride of place at the door of the craft gallery. She felt a two-dimensional approach was more appropriate to introduce mosaics in the classroom. As the crow flies. The craft gallery houses one-off items created by local makers and artists living within a 20-mile radius, hence the shop's name, As the Crow Flies. Deanne's mother, Mary Tremlett, says she enjoys her one-day-a-week volunteering at the shop. 
I could have spent hours browsing the wonderful items in stock, including macrame wall hangings and items created by Laura Jackson, who runs classes in air-dry clay and decoupage, as well as macrame. The wonderful stock includes macrame wall hangings and other items made by Laura Jackson, who discovered that macrame was excellent therapy after difficulty with movement and numbness in her fingers following a stroke four years ago. Laura, who runs classes in air-dry clay and decoupage, as well as macrame, says her first attempt at a pot hanger was a disaster, but she's learned much from her initial mistakes. Deanne persuaded her to run classes, giving her confidence a further boost. She enjoys sharing the craft with other enthusiasts, and everyone leaves the sessions with a piece of macrame, a satisfying outcome. Community Gathering the Dutch Barn hosts a variety of community events and coffee mornings to help combat isolation, as well as musical soirees of all sorts. Thursday is open mic night, the aim being to help up-and-coming musicians on their road to success. The audience can bring their own drinks or picnics, as the venue is not licensed, but popular stone-baked sourdough pizzas are available. There's too much going on at the Gug to describe all the activities. I left the venue impressed by Deanne's enthusiasm to create a space where everyone is welcome, even if just as a safe haven to come and sit. She feels that everyone can benefit from some form of creativity. It's been lost from so many lives. She believes in living a more sustainable life and in having the confidence to make a mistake in finding your own path and your own happiness. Who could argue with that? And the website is guggletonfarmarts.com. Wildlife. As the summer crops hang on a little longer and the autumn season begins, October is the best month for foraging, says expert Carl Minton. October is here and it's perhaps the most exciting time to be a forager. Most of the tender plants are still hanging on in places, offering a rich assortment of wild salads and herbs, and the nut harvest is now in full swing. To top it all, there's never a greater variety or abundance of wild edible mushrooms to choose from, meaning I can sometimes return from a trip to a woodland or footpath with bags of produce collected from high and low. Let's start with one such bag filler, field mushrooms. These can be found from summer to autumn, but I have found the peak season in these parts to be September and October. During this period, I can often spot them in a field as I am driving around, at which point I tend to hit the brakes and work out where I can park, after checking my mirrors, obviously. One of the best things about this mushroom is that when you find some, you often find a lot, meaning just one harvesting session can sometimes end up with me bringing home a year's supply. Couple this with the fact that these mushrooms are really easy to preserve through dehydrating, and I think you're onto a winner. The field mushroom is found in grassland that is not intensively used by agriculture, meaning not monocultures where the use of pesticides is prevalent, but look for them on grazing pasture for sheep and the like. It's a sabropic mushroom, meaning it survives by recycling dead and decaying organic matter under the foliage of the grass. It can be found individually or in clumps, but also in partial or full rings, sometimes many metres across. Look for a smooth and white cap, which can develop a slightly darker centre with time. The young mushroom is domed, resembling the shape of a closed cup mushroom from the supermarket, but the cap opens out to flat as it grows. 
The gills start off a delicate pink and turn brown, then eventually black with age. The cap is usually 3cm to 10cm, and if handled roughly can bruise a very slight yellowish colour. The poisonous lookalike mushroom, helpfully called the yellow stainer, also stains yellow, but much more vividly. Luckily for us, there is also another key identifier to help us differentiate between this delicious edible and its toxic cousin, smell. The yellow stainer will smell of chemicals rather than the usual mushroomy smell we might expect, and this smell can be exaggerated by placing in the microwave for a few seconds if further reassurance is needed. As always, never munch on a hunch, and be sure you have correctly identified your prize before eating. Next up on my free wild food shopping list is sweet chestnuts, a delicious treat of sweet nuttiness, as the name suggests. Sweet chestnut is another wild edible that was introduced to Britain by the Romans, so we can add this nut to the list when answering that old chestnut, what have the Romans ever done for us? Chestnuts can be cooked in any way imaginable, baked, roasted, boiled or microwaved, but do ensure you score a cross in the shiny skin, otherwise there is a high probability of exploding when they're cooked. After cooking, the options continue to expand. Eat them as is, add them to desserts, or make some stuffing. You can also puree them, store them in syrup, or make delicious sweets from them. Established trees will kindly leave the nuts at their base ready for you to collect, and with their unmistakably prickly shell, they're not easily confused with anything dangerous. Just be sure you know the difference between sweet chestnuts and conkers, and you cannot go wrong. Unless, of course, you forget to bring gloves. As a species, we're afraid of the dark. It's an ancient legacy from the time when there were things in this country to be afraid of at night. But regular BV Online wildlife contributor Jane Adams finds the night an enchanting time to go for a walk and happily encourages others to take night walks. She has some useful tips. First, pick a moonlit night. And second, give your eyes time to adjust. Take a torch, but don't use it because you won't see what's beyond that circle of light. I mean, I would always suggest taking a torch. So I wouldn't, I would say keep it in your pocket for emergencies. But yes, if you can sort of sit in the garden for half an hour, say, before you sort of start walking. And then, especially if you can sit in the garden as it's getting dark, and then you'll actually get used to the light that is surrounding you, then it's a lot easier to actually start walking. And I think all your other senses will come alive as well. So you, you, you mean you'll be, you'll be listening for the sounds... Yes. More than anything else. I think, yes, and they seem to be heightened in the dark. When you can't see the detail that you would normally be able to see, then your hearing, your sense of smell, um, even if you're sitting down, your, your touch, you know, it's, it seems to be heightened in the dark. It's interesting because whereas we can go for walks during the day and you might see even if you went to a nature reserve you might see very little wildlife if you do decide to go for a, an evening walk or a night walk in the countryside you're far more likely to actually see or hear wildlife so owls of course are the obvious thing aren't they but but what other things would you be listening out for at this time of the year well this this time of the year is absolutely brilliant for for night wildlife because everything is um 
trying to get its territories and sort of rearranging itself after the summer and the breeding season. Saying that, you've got other things which are breeding at this time of the year. So deer, like um, red deer, um, seeker deer, fallow deer, they're all going through their breeding season. So you're very likely to hear them screaming and bellowing, uh, the males screaming and bellowing to try and uh, attract their, their female harem and, and also to sort of ward off their... Their rivals? Yes, the rivals that want to take their girls from them. So, yes, that's... And I think that's... It's a very spooky sound, but once you know what it is and you sort of are comfortable with it, it's the most amazing sound. It goes right through you. And, I, and I've never I've never heard that, so I, I must obviously come Ooh, down yes, to your you neck of the woods so I can hear it. <laughs> um, and and then of course once you've got your your night ears tuned, you'd presumably hear a host of little rustles and squeaks and various other noises. Yes, and when you're walking along, you do tend to hear quite a lot of sort of um, mice. Well, presumably they're mice and voles, small wildlife that's not going to hurt you at all. I mean, we haven't got anything really in the in the UK that's going to hurt you anyway but yes you'll hear them scampering away and especially this time of the year where you've got the sort of the leaves on the ground and the the crunch of those as they're running over them but it's amazing actually at night the wildlife seems to be less on guard because they're they're far happier going around in the dark so things like badgers and foxes are actually quite noisy and you'll hear them really sort of crashing through the undergrowth sometimes and deer and you're you're wondering what on earth is coming but actually you know you've you've entered their territory you've entered their world so if you can find somewhere to sort of sit and just quietly wait for things to happen around you it can be amazing the sounds that you do hear and you'll be probably quite surprised as to how how noisy they can be. And, and of course, Jane, there'll be, the, I mean, thinking of foxes, you'd be able yeah. to smell them, wouldn't you? Yes. Well, and the badgers, because um, there'll be scent marking on, along their routes as well. So, yes, you'll be able to smell badgers, foxes. The foxes are screaming at this time of the year. I was woken up by foxes screaming the other night. They're especially so because they're youngsters from the summer and now having to sort of uh, find their own territories, so the parents are sort of kicking them out. So there's lots of sounds of protest, you mean, <laughs> from, from the Yes, youngsters. well, there's, yes, I mean, the parents are sort of, are really are sort of kicking a lot of them out of the territory. So you not only get that with the sort of the foxes, but also with the tawny owls. Uh, their youngsters have grown up, and they need to be encouraged out of the parents' territory to go and find their own way. And you can get an awful lot of noise from the youngsters that are going through other owls' territories and being moved on, shall we say. But yes, a lot of, a lot of screaming and hooting. So, so tell me, Jane, have you managed to produce a handy audio guide to, to sort of, <laughs> for the nocturnal human walkers? No, and you know, I don't think you need to. I think you just need to... Be aware that you're going to probably hear things. You don't need to be scared um, and just try and appreciate it. So you don't need to necessarily know what everything is. You might be surprised that, especially if you go out at dusk 
and you find somewhere to sort of sit down you might actually be able to see it before it gets pitch dark anyway you might be able to see deer going past and badgers and foxes but if you can't see them don't worry you know just appreciate the different sounds you don't need to know every species that you're hearing that was jane adams the protected grasslands at Dorset Wildlife Trust's Kinkum Meadows may hold the key to new wildlife-rich corridors across Dorset. Set in the beautiful Hook Valley, Kinkum Meadows is one of the finest examples of lowland meadows in the country, a rare mosaic of habitats which is open for visitors to explore. Dorset Wildlife Trust purchased the Kinkum land at auction in 1987, following a national appeal to save the farm that time forgot. From 1917, the land had been farmed by two generations of farmers in the traditional way, resulting in an unspoilt landscape. Retaining its patchwork of meadows, thick hedgerows and ancient green lanes, the land teems with an abundance of wildlife. The woodlands, wildflower meadows, ponds and streams of Kinkum Meadows are home to some of the rarest plants and animals in the UK. Yellowhammers and linnets make their home here, and the ancient trees drip with lichens. The chalk slopes burst with spring cowslips, harebells and bee orchids, while many species of wax-cap fungi can be found in the acid grasslands. In summer, clouds of marbled white, Meadow brown and ringlet butterflies can be seen. We have lost, at a conservative estimate, more than 97% of the UK's species-rich grassland in less than a century. An estimated 3,000 miles of hedgerows were destroyed each year between 1946 and 1963. Species like the grey long-eared bat, water vole and marsh fritillary butterfly are already on the verge of disappearing forever. Common wildlife like blue tits, bumblebees and grasshoppers, plants and trees like bluebells and oaks could be next. Making more space for nature is the key to reversing these declines. Wildlife needs the chance to breed, feed and move freely beyond the boundaries of nature reserves. Part of Dorset Wildlife Trust's strategy to create a wilder Dorset by 2030 is to establish nature recovery networks on land and sea. Together with local landowners, farmers and communities, the Trust is working across 5,000 hectares to establish an ambitious nature recovery programme to enable Kinkum's wild energy to spread out through wildlife-rich corridors across Dorset. By replanting hedgerows, managing ponds and allowing billions of seeds from wildflower meadows to spread and grow, mammals, insects, amphibians and plants can thrive again and the landscape can recover. A win-win for nature and for humanity. As the president of the Wildlife Trusts, Sir David Attenborough said, everything works better when it's connected. You can find out more and how you can help by visiting dorsetwildlifetrust.org.uk forward slash wild energy. And with that brief look at Kingcombe Meadows, we'll sign off for this month. Do join us again in November for more from the BV Online podcast. Until then, it's goodbye from me, Jenny Devitt. And it's goodbye from me, Terry Bennett.